Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Well, we want to welcome everyone to the Determined Truth Podcast again. Uh, I'm Rob Dalrymple, and I'm sorry to say that my co-host Vinny Angelo is not with us. There's a family emergency situation. Just keep his family in your prayers, if you will. But I am pleased today to have four guests, pastors, or three of them are planting churches in the Phoenix area and extended area all the way up to the New Mexico border. <laughs> Just kidding. <busy. laughs> and uh, we also have an, uh, uh, Curtis Lilly, who's a pastor in, in Livermore, California. We want to bring in some pastors to kind of talk about the issue of Christian nationalism and, and how is it affecting you in the church? So first, I want to introduce J.C. Basinger. He's a church planter in Queen Creek, Arizona, a growing suburb in the southeast of Phoenix, Arizona. He's been a pastor for seven years, and he loves seeing the Lord working through uh, our messy lives to renew and restore people. Been married to his high school sweetheart, Elizabeth, for 19 years, and they have three sons, Caleb, Micah, and Ezra. And we also have Clint Levitt. Did I say that right, Clint? Yes, you did. Well done. Challenge number one. You, uh, you did it. <laughs> Very good. Clint was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. He's married to Emily. He spent the bulk of his graduate studies at Fourth Seminary, focusing on the interplay between theology and culture and how we as Christians effectively engage the 21st century world in a winsome and helpful manner. He's particularly passionate about stories and how they communicate our spirituality, whether through literature, film, or mediums. Clint pastors a local church plant in Midtown Presbyterian Church in Central Phoenix, and is an adjunct professor at nearby Grand Canyon University, teaching classes like Christianity and Culture, Christianity and the Arts, and more. So thanks, Clint, for being here. Uh, Curtis Lilly. Curtis has an unreasonably loud laugh, which is so true, dude. Uh, it's <laughs> awesome, by the way. Uh, that frequently frightens small children and unsuspecting victims. He lives in his hometown where he's pastored a local church for nine years, Livermore, California. Serves as the PTA president of his daughter's elementary school and serves as the chaplain for the community fire department. Curtis went to college aspiring to be a, po a politician. He worked for two different election campaigns and he has a political science degree from, is the Cal State Hayward, by the way? Yes. Now it's now East Bay, right? Yeah. That's one of my alma yeah. maters. I don't know if you know that or not. Yeah. But uh, he also has an MDiv from his denomination seminary. Curtis believes deeply that American Christians need a robust and biblical political theology. And then Jackie Parks. Mm -hmm. Investing in people has always been a big part of Jackie's life. For years as a young life leader and leading teams at university students all over the world. She's had the unique opportunity to invite people into a life of following Jesus through engaging in different places and cultures. Originally from the East Coast. Jackie and her family lived in Morocco for five years, learning how to love their neighbors and live out their faith. She has a BS uh, in biblical studies and an MA in counseling from Liberty University. I don't know, Jackie, if you know, that's one of my, that's my alma mater as well. <laughs> so, all right. And uh, she has been her, married to her husband, Jay, for 16 years. They have three kids and they're now based in Scottsdale, Arizona, where she's planting a new con eco congregation in, Scot in South Scottsdale. She's also nearing the completion of a master's degree in missional theology through Covenant Theological Seminary. So thank you guys and gals for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Rob, I didn't know that you've attended like most schools in North America. Apparently, <laughs> uh, I, well, actually what it is, is I only invited people that went to my alma maters onto the, onto the podcast. So, and then I had to like figure out a few others too. So that, that's kind of what it is, yeah. All right, we've been discussing, Vinny and I have been discussing the issue of Christian nationalism for the last three or four weeks. And we thought it'd be fun to invite some pastors and some church planners into the discussion to see kind of how this issue affects the local church. So what do you sense in terms of Christian nationalism and its effect or its impact on your current role in ministry? 
and I'll open that up to anyone. I think for for church planters in particular, I'm probably more cognizant of it than I would be in an established church. Hmm. And the reason being is in church planting, you're not inheriting a, a church culture. You're trying to create a church culture. Right. Culture. So when you're you're thinking through, you know, quote unquote, vision, mission, core values, basically, what do we want this church to be? Uh, one of those conversations that I didn't have in my previous church because it was an inherited church culture is how do we navigate politics? How do we think through those things? Do we talk about them? And then, Rob, as you and Vinny have been talking about on your podcast and your blog, what do we do about Veterans Day or Fourth of July, these national holidays? Do they have a place in the church? Um, so it's something that I've had to, to think through and make decisions. Are we going to do this or not? All right. Thanks, JC. Somebody else? Yeah, I think as a church planter, a lot of what we are doing currently is picking up the broken pieces of evangelicalism that have been broken by mm. Christian nationalism. And so um, engaging with a lot of people that um, have want nothing to do with church or Christianity, because all they know is a version of Christianity that's been co-opted by Christian nationalism. And so what does it look like? to create a church culture, like JC was saying, that is different and almost like antithesis of Christian nationalism, right? But also how are we discipling people and how are we inviting people into a different reality, a different sort of church formation that doesn't um, include any sort of Christian nationalism? And how do, we, how do we reveal the idolatry that comes along with the ideologies um, that are currently at work um, in our churches? So it's it's multifaceted, but so much of it is just picking up these broken pieces. Hmm. Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, very good. There's a there's a great book that I think uh, kind of summarizes effectively what both JC and Jackie are, are getting at here uh, in regards to developing a church culture. Uh, it's by a woman named Caitlin Shess. It's called The Liturgy of Politics. Uh, hmm. But she, she functionally talks about how in all of our lives, we have liturgies, uh, and a liturgy obviously is a religious way of saying a structure or a form that shapes us in some way or another. Christian liturgies are designed to shape people uh, to become uh, transformed by the renewing of their minds, as Paul would say in Romans 12, right? That we see the world differently as Christians, and that liturgies help us build that into our lives. She functionally talks about how politics have done similar things, and if you see the liturgies of the people in churches across the board, you will often find a form of discipleship that is shaped less by the person of Jesus, less by scripture and more by these other entities. And so as church planters, and I can speak in my context, I am interacting with people who have certain liturgical expressions that exist for them, both within the church and outside the church. And my goal is to say, how can we get a new form of liturgy? How can we get a new form of rhythm? How can we get a new form of formation for these people that that helps unwork some of those things. It's one thing to to call something bad and it's another to build a structure in which a new frame guides us and how we live. And so I'm I've been mulling over that idea a lot since encountering it in uh, in that book Liturgy of Politics, finding ways to say how can we form our people 
with a, a view of the kingdom, a certain view of the kingdom, with a certain view of the Beatitudes guiding us, right? That those who are, are uh, overlooked and oppressed and marginalized, that they're actually the ones who are closest to God. How can we allow those sorts of notions to form us instead of notions of power, notions of political prestige, worldly power in that sense? But yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of how I've encountered it and maybe gives a little structure to to what that looks like for us. Hmm. Thanks. Thanks, Clint. That's super good. And it just reminds me that on a regular basis, I mean, almost daily in, in our congregation, you know, I'm having conversations with people where I am just reminded how profoundly like we've been shaped by ideas that originate in, in our culture and our, in our world, um, ideas that have often co-opted biblical language, mm. uh, theological language, ideas that are are using the name of Yahweh or Jesus and and but are actually fundamentally different from a, a, a robust theology that would come from the scriptures um, but is but uses the language, so that people can't actually tell the difference. But if, if, as you pick it apart, you realize this idea comes from somewhere else and is, has like been smuggled into uh, our churches and is really the, the operating system that's making sense of people's lives and their world and what the church should be doing and their, their voting habits and their participation in society. And so that's one of the really insidious and difficult dynamics is that these aren't just like, oh, there's the Bible and then there's the world or something like that. That's really distinct. There are, there are these ideas at work among us that are these weird linking together, melding together of something else and aspects, core aspects of our faith. And to disentangle those is really hard on a daily, weekly, you know, yearly, yearly basis. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Curtis, just to connect with that. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Second Chronicles 714 <laughs> quoted. And I'm just, I'm just going to read it just for the context of the audience who doesn't have a Bible. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I've heard so many people apply that to America, that if Americans would repent, that God would heal our land and bring back prosperity and wealth, et cetera, et cetera. And times where I just put my head in my hands and shake it, that's not what it's talking about. <laughs> But as you said, we've syncretized syncretism. We've um, taken our nation and Christian nationalism values and applied it to scripture. I was part of about a year and a half ago, a, a rally of all the pastors in Bakersfield, California, where I was pastoring at the time. And we got together and we, and we marched from a certain place down to the, I think it was the police station, downtown Bakersfield. And, and they knew the city knew it was us and what we were doing, everything else that the streets were closed and everything else. Uh, and we marched where we ended up was where the black lives matter protest was happening. And the black lives matter crowd was 
informed that we were coming and that we were kind of coming there to, to make peace. And, and uh, so a, a measure of solidarity with the church, with, with the whole idea of injustice and no problem at all. Well, we got there and they had a platform, uh, a presentation all planned out. And the presentation was planned out was all centered around second Chronicles seven fourteen, And one pastor would get up and say, if they humble themselves and pray, okay, let's pray now you know, and seek my, and they went right. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you're thinking that the healing of the racial injustices and the issues that are going on is going to happen if second Chronicles seven fourteen comes to fruition because God, and I'm thinking that's just not what this is about at all. And so, yeah, I've seen it personally, JC. Yeah. Um, I have a, I have a kind of a biblical story that helps me think mm-hmm. about kind of where we're at with this. So, so, so I think about the kingdom of Israel following Solomon and it divides into the Southern kingdom and the Northern kingdom and the Northern kingdom led by Jeroboam does something really interesting. Jeroboam establishes religious centers for worship and he puts golden calves up and he basically uses the language that we hear from Aaron when the people are in the wilderness, behold your God. Jeroboam uses all of the language of, of his people, the, the faith that people have in Yahweh uses the language of Yahweh, uh, creates a priesthood similar to the, the priesthood around Jerusalem. Um, he, creates really a religious structure disconnected from God's direct instructions, but he uses all of the language of, mm-hmm. of the people of Yahweh. And, and in this, it, and he says it explicitly, he knows that if his people continue to travel to the Southern kingdom, he believes that they will turn their loyalty to the Southern kingdom. And so this is an act of power. There is a deliberate act of power being used to create religious experiences for people that maintain uh, a loyalty to a particular kingdom. And what's really interesting to me is that as you follow then the generations, each successive generation and the kings after are critiqued for walking in the sins of Jeroboam. Mm which is maintaining this, this, this system that uses Yahweh language, uses the religion of those who, who follow God, but as, a, as a, a means of, of power and of maintaining loyalty and of keeping people. And what's really interesting to me is that the further you get from the source, the more difficult and maybe, can I say impossible, it is the Northern kingdom never has a faithful King because that, that system is so deeply rooted and entrenched that people have no ability to even tell the difference anymore. And, and I, I'm concerned as I think about our work and I think about the church's work that, that we're not in the first generation of Christian nationalists, right? Like we have inherited a, of faith that is often given to us in the name of Jesus, but 
is so profoundly distorted in ways that we can't even tell anymore, like, cause we're so disconnected from the beginning mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, there's a, a, I'm one of the most optimistic people that most of my friends know. And I'm like, ah! like there's this despair of like, can we, can we recover? Yep. And just my own experience, I became a Christian at 18, two months before uh, my first chance to vote in an election. Mm. And the, the person who discipled me, uh, who came alongside me and said, this is how you follow Jesus. I was going to register. And he's like, you registered Republican, right? And I was like, uh, I didn't know what I was supposed to register for. He's like, oh, well, you're a Christian. So you are a Republican. And I was wow. like, Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. And so I registered Republican and was uh, a Republican for some period of time because I was given a faith Mm -hmm. that used the language of Jesus, but had been co-opted by by political systems and power and a a narrative that was disconnected from the story of the scriptures. Mm. Oh, Curtis. So, so good, man. You're cooking. I like it. Um, <laughs> dude, the the point you raise about Jeroboam is a great one and, and illustrative because Jeroboam did not start with ideas. He started with tangible things. He, he put tangible things in worship spaces, and it was from those tangible things that new rhythms were developed, right? Which, again, gets back to that liturgy idea for me. I keep thinking about how in order to form people we often start with stuff. We start with a movie or we start with a song or we start with uh, some sort of experience or service opportunity. Like we as Christians realize that. And that's why liturgies exist the way that they do. And what's so fascinating now is that we as the church are now needing to unwork some of the liturgies that have adopted symbols, right? And rework new sorts of liturgies, new sorts of practices. And unfortunately, what I, at least in my experience, am often finding is that the church is kind of right now devoid of really helpful biblical ways of, of pursuing non-nationalistic approaches. So for instance, mm-hmm. there's a, a study that I, I discovered recently, a guy named Michael J. Rhodes, who's doing his PhD on worship music uh, here in the States. He did a comparison of the top 25 CCLI Christian songs to the Psalms. And he just looked at the topics that are addressed in biblical worship, right? Biblical hymns and, and CCLI, modern Christian hymns. He found the word justice mentioned all over the Psalms and mentioned only once in the top 25 of our CCLI lists uh, in the songs that we sing. Mm -hmm. He found no mention of the widow and the orphan Mm -hmm. in our CCLI. And he found mentioning of the widow and the orphan all over the Psalms. Uh, he found no questions asked of God in our modern CLI mm. structure. And he found all sorts of questions asked of God in the Psalms. And so that, that matters, right? That liturgy, that structure, what we're putting in our churches matters. And I think what we're in dire need of now is these alternative liturgies. And I think that doesn't just happen in the church. I think it happens outside the church in our artistic expression in our uh, modes of being together, in our outreach opportunities. All of that stuff is part of these substantive things. Uh, it's not just ideas that we get into people's heads. It's, it's real stuff. And we see that on the other side, right? The flag is a tangible thing and a voting ballot or a, a voting designation as Republican or Democrat. Those are tangible things that form people. A news channel and a news outlet, those are tangible things. 
And so I think in order to combat a lot of this, we need new tangible things more than just ideas. Let me comment here that one of the problems is that when you're in the middle of the fishbowl, you can't see the fishbowl. You need to get out of it. And it's only with that historical retrospect that you can look back and go, oh, I see, the, right? I mean, the pastors in Nazi Germany thought, okay, German nationalism is good. I mean, because they were influenced by power, they were in, for all kinds of reasons. And now we look back and go, it's repulsive. I mean, it's just not even a question, it's repulsive. And so the question becomes, if this has so invaded the church, right? And I think we're saying, yeah, we've all, we all live according to a narrative. We all live according to a, a liturgy. Then how do we get it out? Because I think the first problem becomes so many people in the church, they can't even see it. They, they can't even recognize it until 50 years have gone by. And by then it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the gifts um, to the church currently is the global church. I think mm -hmm. that's one way that we um, we can practically disciple our churches. When we think of what you said, Curtis, about how do we, this is so ingrained in us. Like we are so many generations deep in Christian nationalism. I remember when we, one of our, when we first came back from Morocco, my a family member said, hey, you have to go to this um, barbecue place. You just have to be there and you have to be there at noon because it's really important. And we're like, all right, that's great. So we, we go to this place, barbecue place. And at noon, all of the, all the TV show, the flag and the national anthem starts playing and everyone in the whole restaurant stands up and turns towards the television. And the only thing I could think in my mind was if we, if this happened in Morocco and an American was in Morocco mm -hmm. and this happened in a restaurant, they would lose their mind. Yeah. And not for good reasons, but just because they would be like, oh my gosh, this is, this is crazy town. Like what's going to happen to me. But in here, but in America, we're so entrenched yeah. that that's just the norm. And it was, and it, it was made, it was like, uh, shaped in such a way that like, this is a Christian business. See, this is, this is why like mm. we give our business, <laughs> we give our money to this business because they are Christians because they do this at noon every day. Look at how they honor God and country. And that was my first like stark re-entry back into America mm. after being like living there for five years and raising my kids and led, they went to local school and we were totally entrenched in the, in the culture and in the, in the place. And living amongst the global church and having them poke holes in who we, what we thought, how we read the Bible, how we interpreted the world around us, how we built relationships, like everything was turned upside down for us. And so I came back, not even realizing how much everything had been turned upside down for me and having that happen. And then thinking, what do we do with this? How do we, mm -hmm how do we re-disciple our churches in this way? And then I had the opportunity to work um, before I started church planting. I was working for an organization that partners with the global church and has these sort of reciprocal relationships with uh, global church pastors and global church leaders and their writings and having my mind and my eyes opened again to, Oh, so much of how I read the Bible and interpret the world is through is not through a Christian lens, but through a Western Christian nationalism mm -hmm. lens, through a capitalistic lens, through a triumphant lens, a, a, an exceptionalism. The narrative that I read everything, the lenses through which I read everything and see everything 
is not Jesus. It's not the kingdom of God. It is Christian nationalism. And it has been a a practice of repentance and confession. Mm -hmm. And it is so hard. And I'm, and more and more, I think like, man, we need, we need a bigger, we need a, a, a better, like a, a way to see and hear and learn from the global church that starts to break apart some of our condescension and pride, you know, mm-hmm. so much of, uh, so much of, I think this has to do with it, but so much of the world of missions has to do with uh, just reinforces more of those exceptionalism mm-hmm. narratives mm-hmm. and those triumphalism narratives where they, the world needs us because we have all of these things because God, we're God's chosen people. And so, and most of the international, if you interact with the, with churches, most people say, oh yeah, I went overseas. I went uh, here on a missions trip. And so most people don't even have a narrative or a world, a, a view of the world besides Christian nationalism and exceptionalism. Hmm, that's so good. That reminder of the, the need for the global church is so helpful. Uh, so I'm a part of a denomination that has, that considers itself, itself global and uh, there are churches everywhere. And I was at our last annual, not annual, quadran- quadrennial every four years gathering. And somebody had the idea that for one of the opening events, uh, they would have a group from every country where we have a church uh, march in under a flag. Mm. And this, this seemed like a great idea to the Americans. And so many of our brothers and sisters were Mm. like, what are you making me do? Do you understand Mm. that that flag is a symbol of, of Christian oppression in our countries? Mm -hmm. Um, first of all, so we, we don't understand why you would make us march under it. Second of all, we don't understand why, why, you celebrate and value the American flag in the same way that you do. And, and I mean, talk about a rebuke uh, of a global Mm. nature in a moment of going, Oh, we are so unaware of the rest of the church, the way that they experience relationship with Mm -hmm. nation relationship with empire and all of that. It was, it was really eye opening. And there were a lot of people who had to rethink, um, Mm-hmm. their understanding of these things. Yeah. And a lot of people probably who don't even have a framework to begin to rethink it. <laughs> and I think people that are mm-hmm. listening right now, I think they're thinking, so what are they saying? Because I think what we've done is we've opened up some interesting little cans of worms here. And I think some of the people listening don't really understand how to process this. So first off, we're saying as the church, we're called to be members of the kingdom of God. And that's where our allegiance is. What we have to be careful about doing, and stop me if you guys want to add anything or take anything away here at all. What we have to be careful about doing is combining that with the nation state within which we live. That doesn't mean we can't be patriotic or love our nation state. It just simply means we can't combine the worship of the Lord our God with items and elements and liturgy, to use Clint's word, that replicates the nation state. And I think the point that I think all of us are sharing here that are on this are saying, this has been so inundated into our culture that we don't even, that many of our people don't even see it. It's just Mm -hmm. such a fabric of who we are. And your story about the flag curse is a perfect illustration of that. They just don't even see it. And it's dangerous. 
you know, the story of uh, in the gospels where Jesus says, Hey, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not to Caesar? And Jesus says, okay, bring me a coin whose image is on it. What Jesus is doing on there is he's saying, what are you doing with an image of Caesar in your pocket? Unless he's not saying, Hey, look, okay. You know, give to Caesar what Caesar's give to God. That's not what he's saying because the, everyone in the Israelite community knows that what belongs to God is everything. Psalm, the Psalm says, everything is the Lord's, the earth and all who dwell in it. So Jesus is simply saying, no, sorry, if everything belongs to God, there's nothing left for Caesar. Now he doesn't deny paying of taxes, right? There's a later time he says, okay, go ahead and get that fish. It's got a couple of coins in it because we know that if we didn't pay taxes, that we'd have a problem on our hands. So we'll go ahead. But he's making the strong line between the state and the church that I don't think we have any understanding how far we've blurred those lines. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a helpful example for me that can be instructive is actually in, in the people that Jesus called uh, to be his disciples. Right. So you've got mm-hmm. Simon, for instance, who's a zealot mm-hmm. and the zealots of that time were the progressive party, right? They're, they're yeah. wanting to reform and change the Roman authority that they're currently under. Right. And so you've got this kind of aggressive progressive person. And then he also calls Matthew a tax collector right. uh, who fits within the Roman authority and structure and who is mm-hmm. very pro-authority. And uh, he calls both of those people. And he does not say uh, your priority is going to be your progressivism or your authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. He says, you are going to leave those things behind. You're going to die to yourself and you're going to live to a different kingdom. And uh, we need to be able to say that to people. Uh, I think that's a, a challenge right now is I think a lot of places have trouble saying you are part of a different political reality in the kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's that been helpful for me of like, oh, because I, yeah. we all can get tempted into like, no, this political ideology will solve this problem and help this problem. And it's like, we're not, those aren't the governing principles for us. Right. Yeah. So in thinking through um, what liturgies are in our culture, what liturgies are in our nation, and then what are some counter liturgies that the church can advocate for? One of the the things I've been thinking about just in this conversation is some of the things that we can do on Sunday can be a way to uh, counterform or rehabituate our soul in a direction back to the king and back to the gospel. And one of those could be through our time, if you guys have it in, in your church, a time of confession. Hmm. where you can lead your people to a, a time of lament, a time of repentance. And that can be both individual sins, but also collective sins. Another hmm. thing that I was thinking about is at the time at the Lord's Supper, you are professing Christ as your king. Mm-hmm. And we could use that and, and talk about how our authority, our allegiance, you can use some of that language that we have in our culture and say that is solely directed to Christ. And so one of those is through the Lord's Supper, but also communally, we are all receiving the bread and wine wine together. Mm -hmm. There's no gender, there's no race. If you profess Christ, there's no uh, political party. We are all coming to the table as one body. So the, the unity that we have under the banner of Christ and the allegiance we have to him, I think we can begin to, to counter shape, counter form those uh, counter liturgies in the service. So good. And I, th- and I think that there are, so there are ways of 
receiving and celebrating our differences mm. in ways that are maybe easy entry points that we can then extrapolate act, extrapolate to these harder harder issues. So maybe a ridiculous example, but in our congregation, it's like a thing. I am an extreme extrovert and we have lots of introverts and there is this funny conversation that we have often of people asking if I'm trying to turn everybody into extroverts and and it, there's this funny like my wife and I are extrovert and introvert and when we have learned that both of us bring something of value to our relationship mm -hmm. when we don't judge each other as extroverts are better than introverts or introverts are better than extroverts. But we go, no, no, I actually need my introverted friends because they bring guardrails and balance and health to my life mm -hmm. um, in a really important way. And I bring people like my wife, lots of friends that they wouldn't have otherwise. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. but there is this celebration of those differences. And to go back to uh, what Clint was saying, I don't know how many of our people recognize that in our faith, in, in our faith tradition, there is a deeply conservative impulse, right? God created everything and has a design for how this thing ought to work best. And so there is a work of God to cons conserve the thing that God made so that it continues to work best. And yet, we also recognize that sin has corrupted and broken these, these systems and processes and designs. And so there is a, prog a deeply progressive work at, that God is doing, that the people of God are engaged in, in restoring, moving these things to their intended purpose. There is a growth and a movement forward. And so in our faith tradition, we hold both of these, what feel like paradoxes, that that there is a deep conservatism rightly oriented there is a there is a rich progressivism rich like uh, that when these things are grounded in the right place and are working together the church has the ability to be in the sweet spot of what god is trying mm -hmm. of what god is trying to do and so we need both of those people and i and i and in the same way that we are extroverts and introverts I think people actually have a, a natural conservative bent or a, natu a natural sort of progressive change oriented like way of being. And then there are probably some people who are kind of in the middle, but those people need each other if we're going to be faithful. And so we going from a silly example, like extrovert, introvert, I think we can make the leap to a similar dynamic of these, these impulses that exist in us and that make us a whole body. There are each parts of, of the whole that are necessary to shape a fuller understanding of, of what God's up to. So Jackie, you made a comment earlier about the broken pieces in the church and how many people are coming uh, and just simply don't want anything to do with the church because of what they've experienced. And I think that's one of the things that my experience has been so many of the Christians that have been so 
they've been in the church for a long time and they don't realize the Christian nationalism that's kind of been inbred within them. They don't realize the harm that it's doing. So it's, it's one thing for us to say, hey guys, kingdom of God says this, kingdoms of the nations say this, there's a, a, a disconnect here, we need to fix this. That's one thing. But to say that disconnect is also problematic because it's harming people. It's, it's causing people to, to follow. Can you, and any of you, can you speak to that a little bit, how, the harm that you've seen it do in, in people's lives and the brokenness that you've seen in, in your own experience in ministry? Yeah, so I, this is a, a really tangible thing for me. I lead at our little church plant, what I call a, a skeptics Bible study. Mm-hmm. And uh, it involves people who have been hurt by the church, who have been marginalized in some form or fashion, who have found the church unable to address a lot of these bigger issues or have found them reinforcing cultural issues rather than unworking them and have found themselves kind of repulsed by the church. And so my goal is to identify as many of those things as possible and help provide ways through them uh, Mm. for folks. And that starts by listening. I think this is a, a huge thing that the church we love to jump to saying, we love to jump to speaking. And uh, I, I like using the picture of, of the church as the body uh, to, to illustrate this, but we love to be a church of mouths, but we need ears too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we need both of those things happening. And uh, I've noticed that creating space to acknowledge what the church has exacerbated and perpetuated is a necessity for those skeptics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you're able to name it from inside the church and say, no, I'm with you. Like i I get it. I see mm-hmm. it. It's wrong. It's unjust. We've we've perpetuated these things. It helps bring down some some walls of trauma and of pain and of difficulty, and then allows us to say, "So, what does Jesus speak into this? What does the person of Jesus speak into this? What does the kingdom speak into this?" So, I think listening, I found, has been such such a necessity mm-hmm. uh, when I when I deal with some of the the pain that we've inflicted in the past. Listening and then confessing and repenting. Yeah, very good. And one of the phrases that's going back to that, Clint, uh, has stuck with me, and it's something that I'm growing in, is uh, listening to hear instead of listening to respond. Mm. So, so quickly you want to defend, defend yep. the church, defend the, the bride of Christ. But so many times there are truths that are being told that we need to hear, and as you said, repent of and, and confess and point really to, to who Christ is and how we as simple people have, have fallen short. Mm, very good. So let's go to the next question then. And that is, what do you do when those national holidays fall on a Sunday when you can't evade it? That happened this year, July this 4th. year, the 4th of July was on a Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, um, Clint, you and I were together, right? I think for 4th of July this year. This is very relevant. Um, Jackie. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I think that was the day that I was leading the prayer time. And so there was this, this tension of, all right, what do we do? And, and it's, and Midtown is a younger congregation. And so um, I don't even think if, I think if we wouldn't have mentioned it, there probably wouldn't have been pushback, but I, I do think it's important. And so we, um, we did spend some time thanking the Lord for the freedoms um, that we do experience here. Cause mm-hmm. there, that is a, that's a piece of it is that we, 
we do have freedom of religion um, here. We, we are able to worship the Lord without fear of being arrested, but that should also, that, that freedom, that, that freedom comes with responsibility, comes with the responsibility for us to be praying and, and grieving and lamenting for the freedoms that our brothers and sisters around the world don't have. And so I think that there's, there's a way to always keep it within the, um, with the purview of we, we do experience freedom here. Um, there are, we do experience some privileges and those privileges should always be used in the service of others. So how are we constantly thinking of how do I use these privileges for the sake of, for, for the sake of others? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And an additional thought too, just a couple of weeks before July 4th is Juneteenth, which is mm-hmm. the first, mm-hmm. cel- well, the first national recognition of that holiday that's been celebrated uh, for decades now. And, and so we at our church on the Sunday after Juneteenth also had a time of repenting for the ways that the church has perpetuated this and celebrating mm-hmm. the fact that, that uh, some of these things have changed over the course of time and recognizing mm-hmm what might still need to change. Uh, mm-hmm. The Presbyterian Book of Common Worship has some helpful prayers that go back hundreds of years uh, that, that provide helpful language to say, how can we both repent of how we've perpetuated racial injustice in the past? And then how can we uh, also recognize some of the ways that we're seeing that healed? And so I, I think that's helpful to get at the tension that Curtis was, was mentioning before. Like we can both repent and recognize the freedom we have, right? We can both mm-hmm. acknowledge how we've perpetuated some unhealth and name some of the health that we also get to live with and freedom. And those two things can exist together. Uh, the progressive and the conservative impulse can live uh, together, so. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I just, as a pastor, I can offer from our congregation, like what we, do, or I should say don't do mostly when it comes to national holidays. So when I think of Veterans Day, Memorial Day, 4th of July, some of these holidays, I actually think about them wrapped up with Mother's Day and Father's Day, that that they're all part of an American civil religion that to go back to Clint's original, like we are people of liturgy. And so not just in a given hour long service, but the orientation of our year trains us in a set of values and things that are, that are most important or of, of ultimate value. And uh, it was a number of years. Um, it was so, I didn't realize what was happening, but um, other than uh, a deliberate prayer during our Mother's Day services, um, and I would do the same thing for Father's Day, um, we didn't do anything uh, mm-hmm. for for mothers in our in our services. And part of that was to say that motherhood is is simply one form of vocation in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, fatherhood is simply one form of vocation in the world, and there are plenty of people who will never embody those, never live into those. And, and so those are, those are very, those are narrow um, identities that are not universal to Christian discipleship. And so we, 
on Mother's Day and Father's Day, we prayed deliberately for for those who are moms and are. We prayed for spiritual mothers. We uh, prayed for those who really struggle on those holidays because Mm -hmm. there's a huge loss and there's grief and there's broken relationships and there's all this stuff. And so we just pastorally tried to care for our people in that, in that space. But like the focus of our services was never to the sort of glorification of a particular mode Mm -hmm. of being a disciple and have tried to emphasize those things that are universal for all Christians everywhere. And that then plays into Veterans Day, Memorial Day, these other sorts of experiences. Again, it's an easy sort of translation to say, um, or 4th of July, American identity is not universal to Christian discipleship. Uh, Mm -hmm. Most Christians in the world are not Americans. And therefore, like to celebrate an Americanness in our worship service, there actually doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no fabric that ties those things together. And uh, it disconnects us in many ways from the rest of the great cloud of witnesses, the community of saints mm-hmm. who speak other languages and are and are in other locations and those sorts of things. And so that's part of how I've thought about it. And there's been mm-hmm. a tension at times when somebody's like, "Why aren't we honoring our, our you know, our our mothers?" And mm-hmm. you have to like walk them through like a. Uh, the thought process. And, you know, when you've had that conversation 45 times, it can get tiring. Um, mm-hmm. And especially when you have to repeat it every year and multiple times, um, it's it's not easy, but that's been my approach. Yeah. Curtis summarized that about as well as uh, I would ever attempt to. So I, understand. <laughs> that's why I was afraid of having him on because he would trump everybody else and we'd feel no. like losers. Well, and... I'm, I'm just glad now we have that recorded so that we can all uh, use it later. Yeah. On. Yeah. You know, I had an experience where they just showed up on mother's day, some women, and we're going to hand out flowers to all the mothers in the church. And I went, Oh, because there are some people that don't want to come on mother's day because it's too painful because mm-hmm. they can't have children or because they have lost a child or because they've lost them. And it's like, and, and I don't think they realized what they were. Obviously they didn't realize what they were doing there. Obviously it's a little bit of a different because it isn't necessarily inherently nationalistic though. It, though as Curtis said, it kind of is, it, it, yeah. it really is. So, yeah. All right. Hey, let's wrap this up guys and, and gals. Any, any thoughts, uh, parting thoughts uh, overall and you listen to the other podcast that we did another presentation that we did i know you read some of my blogs on this i uh, appreciate so much what you've had to say and what you're doing and and I, what's interesting is three of you have church plants and so as jc said at the beginning you can establish that culture when you walk into a culture that's already established yeah good luck and i say that from personal experience of seven years uh, any other thoughts Jesus is king. Amen. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And, and this where, where a good theology of where Christ is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the idea of we're going to be saved and go to heaven someday when I die allows us to bring in nationalism into the church because we have this religion and we have this practicality over here, right? We live in this world and Jesus is like, no, I'm the king of it all. And, I, and I'm here to redeem it all. And that's what, oh, we have to start rethinking now. So yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. Rob, can I just burn it all down right now? <laughs> I would, I, no, I, what I, what I, I want to say project of, of making Christian nations 
whatever form they come in, it's not just an American project, is a is a fundamentally blasphemous activity. Can I, I like fully agree that that the story of our our first testament is the story of a failure to to form a a nation, a singular ethnic identity around a part like one single nation, and that through Jesus. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, a kingdom, a nation by which we are, are identified. And that nation, that kingdom, it exists. And that is where our citizenship is. Mm-hmm. And any project to recreate some other earthly nation, I, I just think is a work that denies the Holy Spirit's mm-hmm. um, activity. Yep. in forming a single people made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, language. Yep. And and I, I think it's such a distraction to the work of the church mm-hmm. and is, yeah. So uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was, couldn't that might have been a, hard, a harsh word. But, no, I really and, couldn't agree with you more. That'll preach. That'll yeah, preach. I really couldn't agree yeah. with you more. And, and I think that people simply, a lot of people just simply don't understand the harm that it's done. Uh, to the Christian witness, to the people who have been harmed by a nation state going, hey, if that's what it is, then I'm out. I think we just simply don't understand that. We need to step back and go, well, yeah, wait a minute. And even that first Testament, right? Even that the people of that first Testament, they were called to be a nation that was inclusive. The whole idea was the nations will flow into, into Jerusalem. You, you are to be my kings and priests to the nations, not to be exclusive, mm-hmm. but to be inclusive. So absolutely. So very well said. Well, I want to thank you guys for being here and joining us today. Thank you for your time and your continued ministry. I continue to pray for you guys and support you. And we'd love to have you back sometime soon. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Rob. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time. <laughs>